You're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. To check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. This is um, a blessing, it's an honor to be here uh, this morning. I want to extend a heartfelt thank you to the elders here, your pastors, um, they have been graciously gracious to us, my family. Um, their hearts have been opened. They've been very kind and loving to us, me and my wife and my family. Um, I want to give a personal thank you to your pastor, Greg. I didn't know he was going to do this video, which is <laughs> pretty interesting. But uh, <laughs> he took my intro, man. I tell you that. He's always stealing. <laughs> um, but he has become a dear brother in the Lord to me, um, one of my favorites, um, one of my dearest brothers in the ministry. And I'm definitely going to cherish that relationship for years to come. In light of that, he assigned me the topic of Esther, two chapters there. And um, as any dear friend would do, I accepted and then I reneged. <laughs> so... Um, I, uh, he turned around and gave me the freedom to preach on whatever I felt um, the Lord was calling me to preach on. So I took that opportunity as well. Um, I'll start here. The book of Ephesians begins and ends with a blessing. It begins with a blessing, and then it ends with a double blessing to the congregation. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 2 says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So I begin with the same thing. Grace to you all and peace from our God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to begin our time with breathing a word of prayer. You can bow with me. We will go before the Lord and ask for his blessing over our time. Heavenly Father, your greatness and supreme mercy are forever on display. You have sustained us and protected us all the days of our lives, and we thank you for this time that we have to share your life, your word, with your body. Please be with us at this very moment. Amen. I have to admit, I've been looking forward to this morning for several weeks now. The opportunity, and when I told my wife that I'll be doing this, she was a bit shocked. Um, because I preach Sundays at South Creek Church. As I am one of the pastors there, as Brother Greg said, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, came down to Springfield to play football at Missouri State. Um, I've been here ever since. As he said, I have three beautiful children and a gorgeous wife who definitely uh, I married above my pay grade. All right. They keep me busy. The message I want to bring to you today, as I was thinking about it and I prayed, I wanted to bring you a message that was comforting to you, to us all. It was encouraging to you, but I really want to give you something that's challenging to you as well. This is a timely message, and I hope that it finds you where you are today. The question I have for you is, how do we navigate in these times, this time of unsurety, this time when things are just up in the air. No one knows what's going on. 
I have a theory. When trouble comes, and it will come, and as Christians, we know trouble is before us right now. As Christians, the thing that comforts us sometimes is the thing that we look at that makes us less comfortable. It gives us the most discomfort. I used to be an athlete a long time ago. And I had the fortunate or unfortunate, depending on what you feel about Missouri State football, of playing for them, the Bears. And spring training came every year. And we had 5 a.m. sprints on the track in the dead of winter. There would be snow on the track, ice on the track. I wore my spikes because I ran track as well. That conditioning was terrible for the athlete. I remember running these 200-meter sprints over and over and over again. And so when running, many of the other running backs, because we ran with our position group, would complain about every single time they had to line up and run. The only rest you got was when you ended at the finish line, then you walked back to the 200-meter line, and you're ready to start again. So they would complain the whole walk over. Some of them would even complain while running. I guess my thought is they weren't too tired. See, that was depressing for them. The training was grueling. And not just the the running itself. It was the thought that they had to line back up and do it again. See, for me, I saw with my eyes what was in front of me. But I kept my focus on the finish because there was going to come a time when that final whistle blew and I can go back to my dorm room and go to sleep. That's what I focused on. See, in a way, as Christians, we must be dual visioned. We can't be singular focused in our thoughts, in our eyesight. The title of the sermon today is keep your eyes focused and your hearts renewed. Keep your eyes focused and your hearts renewed. This walk as a Christian is difficult, much different than the the promised, everything's going to be great when you become a Christian. You know, all the hard times will go away and you have Christ, so all is well. You see, as we see things, we deal with the situations after situations, these negative things, hardship after hardship, disappointment after disappointment. But you are blessed as well to see God's hand at work, to actually know that it is God doing it. He's working in the lives of many people, your friends. You get to see your families touched by the hand of God. Those close to you, including your own. See, as believers, we have the distinct honor to be in ministry. Each one of us are in ministry. And it's in a direct relationship with God's will. And that ministry looks different for each and every one of us. We all walk a different path in many ways. But it's the same. So let's see if I'm right. In our walks, there are good times and there are challenging times. Am I right? 
Is that the same for us all? But as the doulos of Christ, slaves of the most high God, we endure much for the sake of our Lord. Much like Paul in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three and following where he defended his apostleship. He says, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so in far more labors and far more imprisonments, beating times without numbers, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews thirty nine lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys and in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers in, on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food. In cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without me being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? We see what Paul went through. Him and all the people with him. They all suffered and were treated scornfully. Second Timothy four verses five and six says, but you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. This is the line. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept. The faith. So with Paul, what he's gone through, him, his life being poured out as a drink offering, the question is why? Why endure what we endure as Christians? For what purpose? Paul says, all for the sake of Christ. All for the sake of of Christ. Philippians 3 7 says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul's main goal, hence my first point, keeping your eyes focused, should be, as Paul's was, on glorifying God. The three G's give God glory. That was Paul's focus. He sees what's in front of him. But his focus. His every inkling, every heartbeat, every step, every hardship endured, every blessing gained was all to the glorification and magnification of God Almighty. And as Christians, is that us? Do we do that? 
Paul was so focused on this task that he took the most mundane actions and said in 1 Corinthians 10.31, you know this verse, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So the mundane task of eating and drinking, if that's the case, then everything else should be done to the glory of God as well. These mundane tasks were put in here for a reason. In my comparison, the lesser exaggerates the greater. If eating and drinking are to be done for the glory of God, how much everything else? When Paul was shipwrecked, was that not to the glory of God? When Paul was beaten, was that not to the glory of God? When Paul prayed for all the churches in which he wrote letters to, was that not to the glory of God? You. As family comes and goes, friends come and go. How are you to respond? Racial injustices happen all across the world now, especially here in the United States. Hence, United States and we are split down the middle. How are we to respond to what's happening in the streets? How are we to, to respond to those who say one way or the other? It should all be done to the glory of God. The moment when we turn to the left or we turn to the right or we look at that starting line for the next 200 meter run, the moment we take our eyes off of what we truly should be focused on is the moment when we will inevitably forget that this is all for the ultimate glory of God. See, I'll tell you a secret. God loves his glory. God has an all-encompassing, unapologetic, unwavering passion for his glory. There are major implications of that. Piper said in his book, The End for Which God Created the World, quote, all that is ever spoken of in Scripture as an ultimate end of God's works is included in that one phrase, to the glory of God, end quote. Famous composer Johann Sebastian Bach says, quote, all music should have no other end and aim than the glory of God and the soul's refreshment. Where there is where this is not remembered, there is no real music, but only devilish hubbub, end quote. Keeping your eyes focused on the glory of God must grip you. It must captivate you. It must still your heart in the chaos of the storm. It must invigorate you in the silence of the day. And it must give you peace in the calm of the night. This must be the fuel to our fire. This must be the reason we get up in the morning and the reason we're tired at night. The glory of God must be priority number one, and any other focus is enemy number one. If this is not us, if this is not our focus, we are in danger. 
you must remember, and you remember how I just stated that the circumstances and situations, if allowed, can take our eyes off of God. Well, I'll throw one at you again. Even the people in our lives can take our eyes off of God's focus. See, thinking about what someone did or what someone didn't do. Thinking about who they are or who they're not. Forgetting that in Romans 8.28 it says that we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. No person, no action, no single event should cause any of us who call the name Jesus Christ as Lord to take our eyes off of God's glory. Or maybe the danger is that we think that God cares more about us than he does his ultimate glory. Isaiah 42, 8 says, God states, I am the Lord, and that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. If you don't know anything, know this. God does not play about his glory. He is very clear about his glory, the glory that is due his name. God's glory is his honor, his splendor, his praise, his dignity, and he will not share it with anyone or anything. See, when we take our eyes off of God's glory, in many ways, we put the glory on the object that we're looking at. We look at that situation and it dictates to us what's going to happen or how we should feel, the disappointment we have. One other thing, maybe we're good with that. We're good with giving God the glory that he deserves. Many people are okay with being God-focused as long as they feel that God is man-focused. See, that's a very tricky place to be. I have to remind myself that God loving his glory over him loving us is the very reason. It is the very foundation of his love for us. God won't let himself down. Therefore, he will not let you down. Isaiah 43, 7 says, Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory whom I have formed, even whom I have made. See, we are the earthen vessels which contain his glory, as I allude to 2 Corinthians 4, 7. All the things we are able to do and able to be finds its source in him. See, God's ultimate commitment is not to man, but to himself. See, God's ultimate commitment relies strictly on him. Isaiah 48, 11 says, For how can my name be profaned and my glory I will not give to another? God constantly reiterates that throughout Scripture. And in that, in that one thing is our trust, our faith, and our security right there. 
God's commitment to himself. Your creation for God's glory. Your salvation was for God's glory. Your regeneration was for God's glory. Your justification was for God's glory. Your sanctification was for God's glory. And your future glorification will be to the glory of God ultimately and supremely. There is not one disobedience note in God's symphony of redemptive history. The divinely sufficient composer is perfect in his composition. This implies that we are faced with a question at every action, every thought, every situation. Are we either going to look at it as an opportunity to honor and glorify God? Or do we look at it as an opportunity to honor and glorify ourselves? Why did God predestine us? Ephesians 1, 6 tells us. It says, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Why did God not destroy Israel when it rejected him from being king over them and demanded to be like all the other nations? 1 Samuel 12, 22 says, for the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name. God's love for the for the glory of his own name is the rock of our security. It is the ocean of our mercy. It is the wellspring of free grace offered to us believers. Jesus died to glorify the name of God. John 12, 27 and 28 says, but for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. He didn't say I glorify it and I'll glorify you. I will glorify my name twice. That is how holy it is. His glory is never to be shared. This is the encouragement to us. He is committed To his glory. And so should we be. If God has a commitment to his glory. We should be doubly committed. To his glory. Redeemer church. Should be doubly committed. To his glory. Every individual in here. Must be doubly committed. To God's. Ultimate supreme. Glory. We affirm. 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. If we affirm this, then we must have a foundation of God's glory. And we must keep this foundation ever before our eyes. Psalm 115.1 reverberates in our minds. It is echoed in our very souls with whatever we do. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. See, as we walk this walk, Ephesians is my favorite book. First half of it, and I know many of you may know this, 
It's talking about theology. Chapters 1, 2, and 3. But that's just the peak of the mountain. There's a whole other side. Now that you know all these glorious things about what God has done for you, who you are positionally in Christ, who you are positionally to one another, what, is, what the foundation of the church is built on. Since you know all these things and you're, you're revved up, you're ready to go, the second half is the scary side of it. We, we get all excited about the theology, but then comes the walkology. How you live out what you've just learned. And as Christians here, our thought, whatever we do due to the glory of God, our walkology should be battery powered or infinitely powered by that very thing. The glory of God. God. So every step you take should be to the glory of God. Every situation you're in, hey, how can I glorify God in this situation? Let me think about it and then do. God loves his glory with an infinite love. It is a raging fire to him. It is unable to be quenched. And for all of us who are being led by the spirit, are we ablaze with the same fire? We must boldly declare with one voice the same constant message that is echoed since the beginning, since before time began all the way through eternity future. To the glory of God. We must guard ourselves from being self-centered. That when a situation happens, woe is me. The man-centered view of life and our circumstances. This is the mistake many people continue to make. Trusting in earthly things, earthly relationships, looking at people and things, their, their talents, their beauty, or their goodness that they see in others. But when these things fade and they will, Humans will fail us. They will inevitably inevitably do so. These people who are man-centered, self-centered, they fall into anguish in the ministry and as Christians in life. They turn their back on the church. They, They walk away. What we all need is to realize that God's glory is constant. And as we journey through life, we will see it manifest here and there in this person or that situation or in our own personal lives. But it all goes back to God in the end. Keep your eyes focused on God's glory so that no matter if it's good or challenging, okay or downright bad, your focus is on how to glorify God. If you're being poured out like a drink offering, it doesn't matter. Your focus is to finish the race. It's to look and think about and focus on the final whistleblow. Because you'll be able not to go to your dorm room, but to be ushered into heaven 
with our Heavenly Father. Secondly, we must keep our hearts renewed. Not only should we keep our eyes focused on God's glory, but there should be a a correlation to having our hearts being renewed every single day. See, giving God glory should produce a result of self-nourishing from God. The Christian walk brings new challenges and trials every day, amen? There's a compounding effect. Life does not stop because you are part of the ministry. You are part of a ministry. You support a ministry. You lead a ministry or because you're a Christian. It only adds. And my wife would tell you, I have a favorite saying. God gives time when there is no time. See, I I look at the clock and the hours and the day and in the week, and I have no idea how I get done what I get done. I hear my wife telling me, Brandon, you got to do this. Brandon, you got to do that. Don't forget about this. I'm like, honey, I know. I know. But thank you, dear. But I do know how I get it done. God. I tend to take that for granted. All of us, including me, are not replenished by osmosis. We don't walk around and Hey, you're ready to go again. See, our buckets leak. Even when there's hardly any water in them. I'm sure you feel what I'm saying. Running around from thing to thing, one item to the next. Job, then to church. Being a dad, being a mom, sister, brother, or a student. You're running around like a chicken with your head cut off. I get it. But in order to make it, you're going to have to take the time out to tend to your very soul. You can't run around and keep running and keep running and not refill the tank. Without that, your ministerial heart shrinks. And your soul gets weary. God has a way to refresh the heart. His mercies are ever present. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 says the Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. See, when we're unfaithful, God is very faithful. When we need rest and we want to keep going, God finds a way to sit us down (laughs) and gets us to take a break because he knows what we need. You must fight to be renewed. Fight for the time to read for personal growth and personal spiritual care. And I'm taking this as myself because as I study for my sermon prep, that takes a lot of my time. I'm bivocational. I have a full-time job. I'm a full-time dad. I'm a full-time husband. I'm a full-time pastor. And I only have time for certain things. But I cannot give up personal time for me. First Timothy 4.6 
It says, in pointing these out, these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. You get that? Constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine. See, Ephesians 1 through 3 is the sound doctrine. That's what fuels chapters 4, 5, and 6. Verse 7 here goes on to say, Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things. A lot of people miss this clear message. A daily dose of God's word goes a long way. God's word equips us to serve God faithfully and with hearts overflowing. You ever hit that point where you hit that wall where it's like, I can't answer the phone for this brother because I'm tapped. I've been there. My bucket was empty. How does that give God glory? You see how one plays into the next? Second Timothy 3.17 tells us that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Equipped. Meditating on God's word and obeying it and its teachings will bless us in our daily lives. In our daily walks, James one twenty five says, but the one who looks into the law, in the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. We are encouraged to not only learn, but to do. I'm sure some of you are saying, well, Brother Brandon, I I know that the word of God is important. My response to you is, I hope so. But you must fight for the time to read it. We've all done it. We've all went week after week without reading our word. But where does that get us? See, there's a time for your heart to be renewed, which is quiet time, just with you, God's word, and God. You can't do ministry without it. And every one of us who are Christians are ministers. We minister. To care for your souls, to you must fight for your mornings. You must fight for your nights. You must fight for your hearts to be protected. Ephesians 6 gives us one weapon, and that's the sword. Your Christian walk is not to see how many books you can read, how many Puritans you can quote. It's not based on how large your personal library is. See, I would rather have 
one book in my library than a thousand. Because all of those books point back to the one book. It's everybody's opinion. It's everybody's thoughts about it. It's everybody's deep thinking, study of it. But they all go to the source. Your Bible should be the most worn out book that you have. And it's not just studying for knowledge, it's studying for doing. There's no point in having all these books if we're not reading God's word to fan the flame that God places in our hearts. If the flame is kindled in your hearts on Monday, you have to fan that flame Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then you get it stoked again from the pulpit on Sunday. It's the idea that your fire never goes out. Brothers and sisters, renew your hearts with God's word. Take time in your mornings to protect these life-giving hours. Discipline yourselves to nurture your hearts. One must not search for the imitation of truth. God's word is truth. Truth is not found in a church that is fallible. Truth is not found in fallible ministers or fallible men. This has never been a place where we can find infallibility. We have a sure word, and that is the testimony of Jesus Christ. It is the rock of truth that we rest on. Our infallible standard lies in the three words, it is written. We must be rejuvenated by this. We must be disciplined by this and to know the difference between what man says and what God says. It is written. That means we must read. There's also one other implication And the implication is, what happens if we don't do this? From this spout comes personal holiness. See, personal time with our God is meant to build us up and to push us out. This dedication to God's word breeds sanctification. This is the environment that cultivates Christ-likeness. The more I know about Christ, the more I want Christ. The more I want Christ, the more I want to be like Christ. And the more I want to be like Christ to the world, the more I look like Christ. I tell my church every Sunday, we are the billboard of Christ. We are constantly on display. The world looks at each And every one of us to see if what the Bible says is true. One should look to us as the example. As Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. The heart's deepest recesses. Being exposed to the light of God's pure word causes us to be more focused in the walking out of God's will. Spurgeon quoted in his 
book lectures to my students, quote, first be trimmed thyself and then adorn thy brother. First, let the Lord work on you and then you can look outside of you. It goes on to say, the hand that means to make the other clean must not itself be dirty. If your salt be unsavory, how can you season others? That's a challenge. Your well must be pure before you go try to clean up somebody else's well. It is the effect of obedience to the word of God in one's life. Second Peter 3.18 says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We want to focus outwardly when the focus should first be inwardly. Self and self-holiness. We are set apart for God's holy use. We are God's chosen people and therefore holiness matters because we represent God. We must I mean, we need to be living by God's standards, not the world's standards. God isn't calling us to be perfect, but to be distinct from the world, to be obedient. First Peter 2, 9 describes the believer as a holy nation. And it's a fact. We are separated from the world and we need to live out that reality in our day to day lives. I leave you with this. My favorite verse in all of God's word is Romans 12:1. It is what God used in calling me to true and saving faith. And he ultimately used that to call me into ministry. And I memorized the New King James Version. I normally preach out of NASB, but uh, it says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies, your lives, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. There's a lot to unpack in that verse. And I can preach two sermons on it. I promise you I could. But I, I'll, I'll exegete this small piece. Last time I checked, reasonable meant at the least you can do. The least you can do is present your lives a holy sacrifice. As believers, we are unable to live a life that is a sacrifice, that is acceptable to God if we are lacking in our time with him and his word. There may be many tugs on your time, but you have to learn how to say no. Or you may find out that the sacrifice that you have been giving may have never been acceptable to God. And it was only acceptable to you. As Christians, two tasks and encouragements I call you to. Give God glory and give God your time. Outside of that, it all be well.
I leave you with Ephesians 6, 22, 23 and 24. Peace be to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an incorruptible love.